All right, friends. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn in them to page number one with me. Uh, If you all didn't get one of those Bible journals for the book of Genesis last week that we were giving out, they are in the front and uh, on your way out. Please grab one of those. They're free. They're a gift from us to you for our study in the book of Genesis. As Jason prayed, we are beginning a new sermon series in the book of Genesis this morning, which is the first book of our Bibles. Uh, The word Genesis means the beginning things, and therefore it is a very appropriate title to the first book of the Bible, which speaks about how this world began. The book of Genesis uh, is 50 long chapters, and these 50 chapters are absolutely foundational to, to how we understand this world that we live in, who we are supposed to be in this world, and it is a lens that helps us to understand the rest of Scripture as well. Jesus himself, when he was on this earth during his life and ministry, he often built what he was saying uh, about God and about our lives in this world on things found in the book of Genesis. And therefore, we think that it is very strategic and wise to study this book together. Uh, And folks, not just to study it very briefly together, but to give well over a year to studying this book. Our current plan is to have 58 sermons from the book of of Genesis. Uh, Yes, that's a lot, but uh, we have confidence that each one of these messages are going to lead us to a greater understanding of who God is, a greater understanding of His commitment to care for us and a greater desire in us to worship him and to bring him glory. Church, Genesis will not disappoint those who are eager to learn more about God and how they can have a relationship with him. It will not disappoint if we lean in with humility. And so, this morning, let's begin by reading one verse together. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Have you ever had an anxiety or a panic attack? Uh, It is estimated that approximately 2.4 million people in America have had a panic attack of some sort and that far more than that battle some form of, of crippling anxiety in their lives on almost a daily basis. Panic attacks often come on when outside stress is high in our lives and when we don't feel like we have control of a situation. Personally, I I would not describe myself as an overly anxious guy, but, but I can definitely remember a few moments in my life when I began to feel what a panic attack must be like for others. There have been seasons when, when stress has been so high and there have been so many different moving parts in my life that during those seasons there have been moments when I actually struggled to, to take a full breath at times. And there was no physical explanation for that other than just being overly stressed out. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, oh, this must be what the beginning of a panic attack feels like for so many. And friends, I know that there are some of you in this room who deal with this on almost a weekly basis, and I want you to know that I have been praying for you. Fear and anxiety are very real. 
panic over what we don't know and what we can't control is a very real thing. And so where do we turn? What do we do with our fear and anxiety when, when this world seems to be going from, from chaos to more chaos, when we can control so little of the things all around us? Where are we to go? Where are we to turn? Well, church, might I suggest that you turn to the book of Genesis? Might I suggest that you look to this book to find the hope and the confidence and the stability that you need to navigate very fearful and uncertain times and even just all the difficulties of life? And that might surprise you this morning to hear me say it that way. I mean, was, was Genesis really written to deal with our anxiety? Many of us are familiar with this book. We, we know about how God created the heavens and the earth in seven days. We know about Adam and Eve and their children. We know about Cain and Abel and, and Noah and the flood and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Esau. We know about Joseph and the coat of many colors. All these things are very, very familiar to us. And actually, side note on this, if you are a newer Christian or less familiar with the church and you're not familiar with the Bibles, you are in for a treat because there are some amazing historical accounts of God and his people in this book. But what does all this have to do with our anxiety? What does this have to do with calming our fears or helping us to live a better life? Well, friends, Genesis is primarily written as a theological book. Do you know what the word theology means? The word theology means the study of God, and, and Genesis is first and foremost a theological book, a study of God. See, so many people tend to look to this book and try to answer every single question that they have about the universe and how this world was created. They, they try to treat Genesis, and the first few chapters of Genesis in particular, almost like a, like, like a scientific journal, looking to find perfect answers for all of their questions. But that's not necessarily its primary purpose. No, this is primarily theology. This is primarily a study about God. In fact, these first few chapters are written as theological poetry for our souls. Genesis is a foundational study of God. And therefore, there can be little that we need as much as what this book of Genesis can offer us. Friend, you do not need a sermon series on anxiety and, and how to help your many fears. You don't need a, a sermon series on your best life now in order to help you learn how to live a better life. You don't need a sermon series that focuses first on you. No, what you need most is a study of God himself. There is nothing better for the soul, there's nothing better for the church than to consider who God is and how he is committed to working powerfully in our lives. Friends, that's not just true of us today. That would have been true of the original readers as well. Genesis was written by Moses, spoken of as the greatest prophet in the Scriptures apart from Jesus Christ himself. And it was written by Moses when Moses was speaking to God on Mount Sinai, or rather, when God was speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, and when God was graciously choosing to reveal his word to Moses for the sake of the Israelites, for the sake of God's people. 
But do you remember where the Israelites were at that time? They had just left 400 years of slavery in Egypt. They're now sitting at the bottom of a mountain without a home to live in, wondering where they are to go from here. They're about to wander in the wilderness for 40 years because of their fear and anxiety about how God would be able to provide for them. And in that moment, what does God choose to write down about the history of this world through Moses at that time? He writes the book of Genesis. God writes through Moses about these very beginning things, about how he created the world and how he chose a specific family within that world and how despite their many sins and failures, he was committed to them, committed to love them and to care for them. That's what God chose to write down through Moses because that is what his people needed most as they were in a very fearful and anxious place. And that is what God chose to write down through Moses for us when we are in a fearful and anxious place as well. The book of Genesis is first and foremost about God. And it is written to give peace and hope and confidence to our soul. Here's the main idea of our, pa- of our message this morning from just verse 1. The existence of God gives comfort to needy souls. That's it. The existence of God gives comfort to needy souls. And we have three very simple points to, to understand this more fully. Point number one, God was. Point number two, God is. And point number three, God will always be. Those are our three points. God was, God is, and God will always be. Let's begin with the first. Point number one, God was. Genesis chapter one, verse one, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Church, what was in the beginning? He was in the beginning. Nothing else but him. God does not write about this beginning time and choose to write that in the beginning, God and unformed matter was. Now, he didn't say in the beginning, God and some form of energy was. He didn't say that in the beginning, God and some other former lesser deities were. No, in the beginning, God. The Hebrew word here for God is Elohim. And and while it is a somewhat generic term or title for God, it speaks of a God who acts, a God who has sovereign creative power in the beginning, God. See, God and his sovereign creative powers is so clearly the, the emphasis and really the fairly narrow focus of this verse and what follows. In in the first two chapters of Genesis, which are the first two chapters of your entire Bible, the word God is mentioned almost 50 times. That is a lot in a very short period of time. And every one of those uses of the word God is very intentional. The, The repeated use shows us the intended purpose of this poetical beginning to our Bibles, right? Like, if the primary purpose of Genesis was different, if the primary purpose of Genesis 1 was to give us perfect scientific clarity on how this world came into existence, then God would have written this very, very differently. He would have said something like, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then he would have given a full, 
detailed, scientifically verifiable account about each tree and each ocean and each creature and how they were brought into existence molecule by molecule. But he didn't do that. Instead, it just says, in the beginning, God. And then starting in verse 3, it says, and God said, and God said, and God said. The focus is intentionally not on the details of each created thing and how they came into existence, but the focus is on the one who did the creating. The focus is on the one who did the creating. And it's on how absolute and universal his creative power was. It says, notice how it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. When it says heaven and earth there, God is intentionally speaking in really big terms. Those terms, heaven and earth, are are all-inclusive. Heaven likely speaks both of the place that God created for himself and the angelic beings to dwell in, but it also speaks of the cosmos beyond this earth. And then earth speaks of the place that man was given to dwell in. These terms are supposed to capture all of life. Gordon Wenham, in his commentary, simply says this, Genesis 1-1 could therefore be translated in this very simple way. In the beginning, God created everything. He created everything. And church, here's what I want us to consider briefly this morning. I want us to consider how stark this biblical truth is to the world's perspective, to the world's perspective in our day and in the day that this was written. When when God led Moses to write this account of creation, Israel was surrounded by nations who worshipped many gods and who often thought that this world was created out of some cosmic battle between these deities, or that there was a a god of the sun and a god of the moon and a god of the the ocean, or that the two gods had sex and the world was born out of that, or, or some other crazy idea like that. Polytheism. Polytheism means the belief in many gods. Polytheism was everywhere in that day. And so can you imagine how striking, how stark Genesis 1 would have been. The Genesis account simply did not allow for that sort of polytheism or pantheism. Pantheism is the belief that the world itself in some form is God. The Israel's belief in the one true God who created heaven and earth, it would have been shocking to the culture all around them. And church, it's shocking to the culture all around us too, isn't it? Because we also live in a polytheistic society. The, the different gods of our society might not have the same specific names that they did in Moses' day, but that doesn't mean that we don't still believe in some of them and still worship some of them. We just believe in the God of science, or we believe in the God of materialism, or we believe in the God of nature, or we believe in the, the God of autonomy and individualism. But church, Genesis 1 allows no room for these other deities in our lives. It simply says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's really good news. Listen, God is not afraid of carrying sole responsibility on his shoulders for this world. He, in this passage, does not share the glory of creation with anyone because he does not need to share the responsibility of creation with anyone. He is able. 
He is capable of upholding the entire world by the word of his power. He's, he's not bashful about how strong he is. He, he's not trying to be needlessly humble. He's saying, no, 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 it wasn't really me that did all that. No, he did it. And he wants us to know that it was him that did it. He's not bashful that he is perfectly capable to create and sustain entire galaxies. It's amazing. And friends, that should have an effect on our souls this morning. Genesis chapter 1 is not a high school history or science class. No, what we learn in Genesis 1 about the beginning of this universe is good news for our souls because it states clearly that this entire world is being controlled and guided, not just by a bunch of chaotic, impersonal matter or energy, but by an eternally loving and faithful God. And as we grow in our understanding of who this eternally loving and faithful God is, as we will through the pages of Genesis, our lives are going to grow. We are going to be changed. We are going to be strengthened. God was. And that brings us to our second point, point number two, God is. God is. See, see, believing that God was in the beginning is good, but it is not the whole story. There are plenty of people in this world who, who cannot take the leap of faith to believe in Darwinian evolution. And so they believe in some form of intelligent design. But listen, it is a very different thing to simply be a, a deist. A deist is someone who believes in a God that, but doesn't believe that that God is actively involved in the world. There's a very big difference between believing in some form of an impersonal, intelligent designer and believing in the God of the Scriptures. But this is where Genesis 1 can further instruct and encourage our hearts. Look again at verse 1. It says, in the beginning, God created. He created. That, that word create is, is the Hebrew word bara. It, it's always connected to God himself throughout the Old Testament and to his, his freeness to, to create as he wishes. That word bara, that word to create, speaks of, of God designing and, and constructing something. It speaks of, of fashioning and, and forming. The sense of, of bara seems to be not only, not only that God has perfect freedom and power to create, he doesn't need matter to create with. He, he creates ex nihilo, out of nothing. He needs nothing to help him, but it speaks to more than that. It also speaks to his, his purpose in creating. He has a design. The God of Genesis 1 does not create in a, in a chaotic sense without any direction or purpose. No, he creates with intention and with design. Things are fashioned by him, much like an artist fashions for the purpose that he has in mind. We can also see some of this when it speaks in verse 2 of the Spirit of God hovering over the darkness. That speaks of God's powerful presence, personal presence, likely through the Holy Spirit being active in creation. And, and the same word used for hover in this text is used in Isaiah to speak of a mother eagle hovering over her young. And so, so Derek Kidner says this. He says, in the Old Testament, the Spirit is a term for God's outgoing energy, creative and sustaining. And then he says this. 
any impression of an Olympian detachment. In other words, any cold, deistic sense of God being removed from his creation. He says that sort of thought is forestalled or stopped by the picture of the mother bird hovering or fluttering over her brood. What he means is that when we see how God creates in Genesis chapter 1 and how he's personally hovering over his creation in order to bring a good design to it, we cannot have a view of God that portrays him as cold and detached. That's just not what Genesis 1 says. We can see that in verse 1, and we can see it through the rest of the chapter and through the rest of the book as well. He creates with a purpose. He calls people and directs people with a purpose. Friends, Genesis, it's going to be so good for our souls because Genesis is going to remind us over and over again that God is not far off. That God did not create this world and then turn his back on this world. No, God is. God is present in this world. He is present with his people. He is actively sustaining this world and his purposes for this world. That's, that's who he is, and it's by his design. You know, just, just last night I was, I was with some friends, and we were outside, and there was a, a small kiddie pool for some of the kids to play in, and, and one of the kids... Uh, must have gotten hurt, he must have fallen or something, and he comes running up looking for his dad, but he's got these, these goggles on and he's dripping wet, he can hardly see, and he's, he's crying, Daddy, Daddy, but he's like turning around, he couldn't see anything. He's like basically blind with those goggles on and the water streaming into his face as well. He couldn't, Daddy, Daddy. His dad was right there the whole time, and his dad quickly just picks him up and holds him and, and cared for him in that moment. But friends, that can be a little bit of how we can relate to God. When, when bad things happen in our lives, when we fall down, we can become very frantic and say, God, where are you? God, it seems so dark. Have you disappeared? I can't see you, God. Have you left me alone? But in reality, Scripture says, no, God is with us. God is present with you this morning. God is near to you in this season. He is by your side. Hebrews chapter 1 says that this God upholds the universe by the word of his power. Do you know what that means? That means that because God is the, the causal effect of all creation, if, if this God who wills this world into existence, if he does not continually will this world into existence, then this world ceases to exist. If he does not will you into existence right now, you cease to exist. And so, friend, listen very carefully. You being alive today is a reminder that God wants you to be alive today. He is giving you life right now. He's causing your heart to beat right now. He's, he's giving your lungs breath to breathe right now. He is sustaining you because he loves you and he has a purpose and a calling for you. He's designed you, and he has good plans in store for you. We can see it everywhere in Genesis. We can see it in Genesis 1 and 2 in the creation of Adam and Eve and the purpose that he gives them to populate the world and to bring him glory by having dominion over the world. We see it in Genesis 9 to 10 and how God preserves Noah and his family through the chaos of the flood, and then he gives them a purpose as well. 
We see it in Genesis 12 to 15 when God calls the man Abraham and his wife Sarah and chooses to bless them and he gives them a purpose to go and to be a blessing to the world around them. Listen, we see it in Genesis chapter 37 to 50. I can't wait to preach that section of of Genesis to you. When God sovereignly, providentially, and personally watches over Joseph and uses even the worst circumstances, imaginable, terrible events in Joseph's life, God is there and he uses them to bring about good and to bring him glory. Why does God do all this? Well, because God is. God is present. God is active among us. God is carrying out his plan for our lives. Even when it feels like chaos surrounds us, God is. And church, I just, I want to make a specific application to us this morning because we are living in chaotic times. Don't know if you've noticed that or not. This this world seems to be going insane. And as I was preparing this message, I kept having the sense that I really believe is from the Holy Spirit for us that there are, are people in Redeemer who are wearing thin. I mean, the quarantine started back in March. It has been five months in this season. That's a long time. And I had the strong sense that there are people who are on the verge of collapsing under the weight of it. And so maybe it's the pandemic itself. Maybe it's how the pandemic has turned political. Maybe it's the pandemic in connection to the political climate with the election. Maybe it's family difficulties and relational struggles. Maybe it's fear about your children in the upcoming school year and what that will look like. I just had the sense that there are some here who are quite literally starting to crack under the pressure of it all. And so a few things for you. Whether whether you are here this morning in this room or whether you are watching online, I believe that you need to hear this. God is God is with us. God is for us. He is not absent, and his design for this world and for our lives has not failed. And also, just practically, whether you're here this morning or whether you're online, maybe we've never even met before. If you are at that point of weakness and if you are feeling frail, we want to care for you with the love of God. We want to pray for you. We want to seek to encourage you by reminding you that God is present. And so please come to us and ask for prayer. Come up after the baptism to say, and say, I'm in that place. Would you pray for me? We'll pray for you right then and there. If you're online, if we've never met, shoot us a text. We will try to come to your house and spend time praying for you. If the season has taken its toll, you're just wanting to give up. Please don't just remain in that place alone. Contact us. We want to care for you. We want to remind you of how present God is now and how he's not going anywhere anytime soon. And that brings us to our third and to our final point this morning. Point number three, God will always be. God will always be. What a great beginning to a story, verse one is. In the beginning, God It almost has a a once upon a time feel to it, doesn't it? But the beginning of a story is only good if it leads to a fuller story. No one just wants the start of a story without the finish. Charles Dickens' tale of the tale of two cities and its first line that it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, it's only so good if it goes on to complete the story. But friends, that is what we have in Genesis chapter 1. 
we have the beginning of a story, and it is a story that will not disappoint. See, after Genesis 1, things begin to pick up, okay? God starts speaking, and things start being created just by his words. And then he starts declaring that they are good. And then he speaks, and Adam and Eve are come into existence, and he declares that they are very good. And then he enters into a covenant relationship with Adam and Eve. He, he commits himself to them. So, so we're going to look at this more in the, in the weeks to come, but, but one of the things that I am most excited about in the book of Genesis is how we are going to be able to, to see with greater clarity how God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. What is a covenant? Well, a covenant, biblically speaking, is like a very, very serious promise or even like a, a contract between two people. A covenant ties two parties together. A covenant is like a, a promise to remain in relationship, a, a promise to be faithful to the work that needs to be done. And what we see in Genesis is that God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. Right away, quickly in Genesis, right away in chapters 1 and 2, God enters into a covenant relationship with Adam and Eve and with all humanity. He, he commits himself to the story by making man in his own image. By making man in his own image and, and by making a covenant with them, God, in a sense, is saying, I'm not going anywhere. I've, I'm invested into the story. I will complete the story that I have begun. But, but like any good story, the story that God chooses to write is not without its dark chapters. Like any good story, God has sovereignly chosen to leave room in the story for sorrow. He has sovereignly chosen to leave room in the story for pain. He has sovereignly chosen to leave room in the story for chaos and to leave room even for sin and death. And he's not just done that because it's a good literary device in real life or because he wants to write a bestseller. No, he has sovereignly chosen to leave room for sorrow and death, because somehow, we don't always understand it, but somehow in the mystery of his sovereign purposes and plans, he knows that the presence of sorrow and death will create a happier ending for those that he has made and those that he loves. And as you know, it's not very long in the story before all of these things come into play. Just two chapters from now, in Genesis chapter 3, humanity falls into sin and breaks relationship with God. Relationship is broken, but that's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story because our God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And yes, it may seem like the good promises of God have failed because the pages of Scripture from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation are filled with sorrow and pain. And it may feel like His promises have failed because the pages of your life are filled with suffering and pain. But it's not the end of the story because from the very beginning, even after sin comes into the picture in Genesis chapter 3, we see that God is committed he is committed, he is covenanted to his people to use all these things to bring about good in their lives. And this morning, you might be in a particularly hard spot, and you might say, how? How can we know that God is not indifferent to our pain and sorrow? How can we know that he has good for us? 
How can we know that this pain and sorrow that he's allowed is, is a good thing and not a bad thing? Church, listen, we can know because the most important chapter of the story has already been written. We can know because centuries and centuries after these beginning words of Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created, we come to a new chapter in the story. John chapter 1, verse 1, where we read this. In the beginning, a clear reference to the start of the story. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then verse 14, glorious verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God wrote himself into the story. We can know that God will always be and that he is committed to bring about a gloriously happy ending to our lives and to the end of this cosmic story because he wrote himself into it. And he wrote himself into it and to be submitted to the pain and suffering that we also had to endure. God himself entered into the creation that he had made as one of his creatures. He entered in as one of his creatures in order to live for his creatures, in order to die for his creatures. And when he rose from the dead in order to crush sin and death and to give life and hope and peace to his creatures, to his chosen people, the same God who was, same God who is, is the same God who will always be because he is the story, friends. It's all about him. He created us and he sustains us. He came and died for us and now he's working to bring us back to himself because he covenanted before the beginning of time to choose us and to make us us his own. He wants to be in relationship with us and nothing can stop his plan. Not our own sin, not the chaos of this world, nothing can stop him from being faithful to his covenant and from making you and me his chosen people who live with him for all eternity. Our God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, and so we can rest in him. The existence of God gives comfort to needy souls. If you approach this creator God in humility, if you approach him in humility and express your need for him, he will be faithful to make you his own, to keep you secure, to keep you safe in his grace until the final day when the story is complete and we get to rest with him and live with him for all eternity. What a day that will be. God was, God is, and God will always be. Amen. Let's pray.